Hello to our listeners and welcome to TNT ESQ. Along with my co-host, Reese Thomas, I'm Teresa Quinlan. We make up TNT. For those of you that don't know, it's our name, Thomas and Teresa. We're here to explode the status quo, because this series is all about talking with people who are helping us to think differently, so we can start doing differently. Our guest today is Jane Adsett-Grant, who joins us from the UK. Hooray! Uh, Jane is an award-winning executive coach, a facilitator, a leadership speaker, and an author. Jane believes leadership is a privilege, a profound responsibility, and as such, imagines our workplaces and communities as environments that enable others to become their best selves, their compassionate, conscious, and courageous leadership of self and others. Through her practice, Jane coaches individuals and teams by creating environments of generative listening, rigorous thinking, and high performance. Truly wonderful stuff. Welcome to TNT ESQ, Jane. Thank you, Reese and Teresa. It's wonderful to be here with you today. Uh, okay, so as always, we want to kick off with asking you a question about where your passion originated, why it became an obsession in a good way. So we'd like to encourage you to talk about your story, how it was that you came so intertwined with the idea about encouraging people to be who they are meant to be. Well, thank you for this. And, you know, it was interesting as pre-joining you this morning, this was such a profound question that you gave me a few days ago that for me, it really required some deep thinking. And, you know, it's rare that I take stock and look back because I'm someone who likes to sort of stay in the present and help people move forward in their lives. So this question has kept me thinking a lot. And so where did my passion come from? Where did it begin? Well, I guess for me, there were several pivot moments in my life. And I want to take you right back because I had what you would probably perceive today as what you know of me today and what you might see of me today as a rather untraditional upbringing. So my parents divorced when I was nine and then lived with my dad and my brother. I went to grammar school, uh, lucky enough to get into the grammar school, but I started that grammar school and I was um, in the first year of after our exams was rated number 30 in the class out of 32. I was shocked and I'd lost my way. I, in fact, I didn't know where, I didn't know how was I going to develop myself. Um, I knew that I didn't want to stay at number 32 in the class. I had to figure out how would I develop how would I become whom I thought I could possibly be and after three years after the exams at the end of that year was moved up to a third place in class but that was a pivotal moment for me realizing that actually I had to figure out what I needed to do to be the person I thought I could be I had another pivot moment in my life and this was I had done my A-levels and actually hadn't done very well again it's like this wretched pattern I don't know whether I was at the very bottom but I certainly hadn't done particularly well for a number of reasons. Um, but I did well enough to get into secretarial college, which my mum and dad kindly helped me get to, because university was never a thing in my family. None of us had ever been before, and it was never on the table for me. Um, but I went to secretarial college and then started working in the city, which had been a passion of mine. And after three years of working as a secretary, I had the opportunity to travel abroad. And here comes my pivot number two because I got to travel abroad and in that way I met, met people rather all around the world and I discovered the impact of culture, of how people live, of how people treat one another and I had the opportunity to work in Australia and it was in this time working in a company called State Transit Sydney Ferries 
that I discovered what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And that was to help people find their gifts, their talents, and through this wonderful thing we call work, develop those through the people they meet, the work they get to do, and how they get to discover and grow themselves. And then the last pivot was when I came back from my studies. For the next 16 years, I worked in the city of London, which I'd always wanted to do. And I'd worked in financial services and professional services, always serving people in what we now call people roles, or they were HR, before that it was personnel when I started. But what I discovered at the very end of my career in that environment was a very harsh environment. It was tough. It was the early 90s. People were treated in a way that I never wanted to see. And even myself, I remember being part of, um, I was in HR and I was working for a frontline business. And the guy that I was working with just yelled at me one day. He was furious that he didn't get the resources that he wanted. It was a graduate recruitment program. And he came in and just yelled at me in front of all of my team. And I literally wanted the floor beneath me to open up and I could fall within. He was frustrated, he was annoyed, but I felt so undignified, so unhuman in the way that he just lashed out. And there were more incidences like that. And it really challenged my thinking. And that was another final pivot that made me realize I want to help people lead differently. And so later on, I just started a, my coaching and leadership practice. So that was the history, if you like, that got me, that drove this passion for creating environments, helping people be who they were meant to be, but most of all, treating people with dignity and respect. Is part of your philosophy that when people arrive in that space of being who they are meant to be, that their behavior shifts to be much more of this respectful, dignified, kind, loving, that when people are blocked, they're in the space of inauthenticity, perhaps, that that is that frustration is what drives poor behavior? That's such a beautiful question. I have a philosophy that people are inherently good, that their nature is good, they have the capacity to think for themselves, to perform well for themselves. And what creates and causes that to go offline is often assumptions that have led them to make different decisions mm -hmm. and those different decisions maybe as you say show up in how they behave driven by a bit of frustration of what they perceive the situation to be but my philosophy is that human beings are inherently good and we have the capacity for good and that's what i seek Love that. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear your story because obviously we have lots of people on here and we have the same sort of question. So we get to hear a lot of this backstory and it usually falls into two camps. So they've either had such a positive experience that they want to replicate and do that themselves, or they've had in your, in your story there, they've had a really negative experience. And because of that, they want to champion against that and go on and extol the virtues of being the true leader, whatever it might be. And I relate to that as well. So I'm interested to know a little bit more about your evolution from this coach to this well-respected author. Maybe you could share us a little bit about what you've learned. You took us up to that precipice of where you, you started and you realized what your purpose was. And then I'm assuming that during those years that followed, you've learned a great many things and you've adapted a great many practices and been able to help a great many people. So could you share a few 
of those stories with us, please? So yes, I have. And, and I think for me, there was a moment that was transformational um, and led to me writing the book. And that moment of transformation was when I met and discovered um, Nancy Klein, the pioneer of the thinking environment. So I had been a coach for 10 years and, you know, would, you know, really enjoyed doing that work and helping people discover more about who they were and what they wanted to do to accomplish their dreams and, and their business and personal growth. But the bit that shifted was when I met with Nancy Klein and it was a good friend of mine actually that had said to me, Hey, look, let me give you a thinking partnership session. Let's just meet up and I'll give you this opportunity to experience what this, what this way of being, what this kind of approach to coaching is. And a shout out to Ray Lamb, who's a wonderful friend and a gentleman who I met years ago through work. Um, and admired very, you know, very much. And after this thinking session with Ray, it blew me away. For the first time, I felt truly listened to. I felt really valued as a human being. And I completely broke through. I'd been wrestling with a number of things, one of which was balancing my work, growing a coaching practice. My husband was traveling hugely with his work, having not been present at home a lot, um, and two young children. Um, and I was doing my postgrad in psychological coaching at the same time. I still think, I don't know how I managed that, but anyway, somehow I did. And so this was when I was given the opportunity to experience the thinking environment. I then went and read Nancy's books, those two books, Time to Think and More Time to Think. And then I put myself on the program, How to Become a Thinking Partner for Others. I loved it so much. It transformed my life, both as a mother, as a wife, as a daughter, and significantly in my coaching practice, because my clients began to have breakthroughs that I'd never seen before. So I'm getting the books. It's my first takeaway. I'm going to get those books and read them. <laughs> And first thing that came to mind with emotional intelligence coaching is time to feel, more time to feel. <laughs> I'm interested in really hearing from you the distinction between thinking and feeling in the breakthrough process. Beautiful. And I love that question because I get challenged on it a lot people assume because it's called the thinking environment that it's purely a cognitive process. But as you'll know, thinking comprises our feelings, our emotions. We are emotional beings that have the capacity to think. And so there's a deep connection with emotions. And one of the beautiful things around being a thinking environment, in fact, feelings is one of the components in all our observations suggest that in order to help people think well for themselves as themselves, it depends on how we, the coach, the parent, the mentor, the leader, show up around them. And one of those components is allowing that person to express their feelings. And as a coach or and as a mum, as I mentioned, this is a question that I'll often ask my girls, you know, how are you feeling today? How are you feeling just now? And allow it just by simply asking that question can illuminate and free people up to then think more clearly for themselves. So there's a huge connection. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I've read one of those books, so I definitely recommend that, uh, Teresa. You, you would really enjoy both of them. Mm -hmm. So for me, you, you mentioned about the environment. Now, I know that there are 10 things that you need to create to try to establish that environment. So I'm interested to know 
if you see any difference in creating those 10 things in this new business working model that we now find ourselves in a virtual world, I know that you know, a lot of the power from being in those thinking partnership sessions is being face-to-face, having been in the energy. And I know that it can still work in Zoom, but I'm interested to know your thoughts on that, whether, whether there's anything that needs to be adapted, whether it needs to be rethought in, in a virtual concept, or whether it, for you it still works just as, just as simply as it, as it was always written. Wow, that's such a profound question, Reese. because part of being a thinking environment for others, as you refer to these 10 ways of being, these 10 behaviours, one of which is attention. How do we give our attention? And I specifically use the word give because it's an action and it's an active skill. In my experience, is as important and as worth learning as it is in the art of speaking. But it's so often we over, overlook the capacity and overlook what it takes to really listen to one another, to really give our attention. And in answer to your question, how has it changed in this more online and space? We are recently, as thinking partner practitioners, currently in the question, how do we continue to generate and to offer generative attention? Or are we simply giving exquisite attention in terms of generating attention is one thing or giving genuine attentiveness is something different for me it's combination of things giving this generative attention as we are doing with each other right now one is the eye contact and of course it's mastering the art of looking at the camera so that you know that i'm looking at you one of the challenges is when you're in a group conversation how do you know whether i'm looking at you reese or you Teresa, in this moment when we're on a one-on-one it's easier because you can tell that I'm looking directly into your eyes. And that's important because when we're wanting to offer our attention to another, we have their side gaze on them so that they know that they matter. And when people are thinking well for themselves, typically their eyes will wander. They'll be looking at the sky to think about something of memory or to imagine something. They'll be looking down towards the ground to connect with their feelings. They may be looking to their side to think of something that's popped in their audio and a meta system. And so the reason we give attention and we give our eye contact on their eyes and go wherever their eyes goes is a generative approach so that when they come back to us, we're there, right there. The other thing I'd love to say about giving this generative attention is to be able to free our own mind, to be at ease. It's another of the components ways of being is so that we ourselves as we are listening with palpable respect to that individual we free our own mind of urgency or competition because when i listen i'm not listening to form a reply to make a judgment to think about what i might want to say or give an opinion what i'm more interested in is what you're saying and where you might go next with your thoughts And that for me is the distinction with a generative attention to listen, to help somebody encourage them to think more further than they had before. I'm so excited to know your thoughts on this next piece that you've released in my brain, but I'm more so feeling it sort of in my sternum is this path to authenticity. So related specifically to eye gazing or maintaining what might have just sounded like intense eye contact. When individuals are masking, so they're not in their authentic self yet, eye contact can be incredibly uncomfortable because there's this palpable energy that the individual looking at you 
if you look directly back at them, they can see you. And so individuals who are masking can sometimes feel that, like, I don't want to look at you. So I'm curious, as you progress with clients, do you find their eye contact becomes more and more consistent, more and more relaxed? They maintain eye contact with you longer? And is that then a marker of, oh, they're getting there? Mm. So just to be clear, the eye contact is me mm -hmm. as the listener. So my eye contact is on their eyes. What I notice when they're thinking, they're really looking at me. They are so deep in thought that they are, their eyes are wandering and it's beautiful to witness because you can tell when somebody's thinking. And what's really interesting is that, of course, what, when people are speaking out loud, they're sharing their thoughts out loud. But there is this incredible information that for every 300 thoughts one has, only 30 are spoken. That's also the capacity at which we can think versus the speed at which we listen. And so what that means is that I will never assume that what someone is telling me, well, what I know is that I'm only getting, you know, a tenth of what's actually going on in there. But this idea of the mask and authenticity, that's a really interesting question. I love it. And it's really interesting for me in the sense what I notice is absolutely people become more relaxed with me because when they begin a conversation, when we begin a session, a coaching session, a thinking session, I share with them from the get-go. I'm going to be listening to you, unlike you perhaps have been listened to before, and I'm not going to interrupt. And so because of that, will you let me know when you're ready for me to ask another question? This is when they start to look at me again, because they've had all this wonderful thinking, and then they'll come back to me, and guess what? My eyes are right there, ready. And then I'll ask a question to generate more of their thinking. And as they get used to the idea and used to this capacity of being able to think for themselves, they become more comfortable, very often get a breakthrough. And it's like, wow, where did that come from? So we use those numbers there and it reminded me of a guest that we've had on before. I know that you know him as well, Oscar. And, and I was reminded of something that he, you know, his various different levels of listening. And one of the things he's, he's talking about is, is listening to what's not said. So I'm interested to know, it's similar, but it kind of buys a little bit with what you're doing because you're, you keep asking the incisive questions to get everything out until the person is, has explored it thoroughly themselves. And there's, so there's nothing more. So there isn't really a question of what's not been said, but at the same time, he's trying to say that we need to listen. How do those two different concepts fit together? Is it about the incisive questions? Is that what makes the difference between listening to what's unsaid and inviting them to really empty their thoughts? <laughs> it's a beautiful question. And what I would say to you is that it is actually all of the components of the thinking environment that allows that energy and people to say what they may not have said before. And in my experience, clients often share with me, I've never said that out loud before, Jane. Or gosh, now that I've shared that, I now feel this. And so for me, the, the, the components of being a thinking environment, if we were to use simply one of them, if we were to give each other the attention that I've spoken about today, if we were simply to do that with one another, you would notice a remarkable difference in those around you with their capacity to think well for themselves. The thinking environment, when we apply all of those components, that's when you see the transformation. And in my experience about this idea of people, uh, it's what they're not saying. It's not just my eye contact. 
it is my face. How does it look? Because often I'll be encouraging people through my eyes. It will be a soft gaze. It will be a, um, a look on my face. And, and actually, I don't know particularly, but a lot of people say, I've just noticed the way that you hold your head or that you're looking, you just have this kind of, you know, this engaging with people that wants them to share more. And so I'm very conscious of, and I think it comes through, you know, being at ease myself and also this philosophy, I know the goodness within you and you may not see it yourself. You may not have found that yet, but I know it's there. And part of the, the way to help people be authentic and open and say what they want to say again is all in the contracting. And even with a lady I had this morning, she warned me about something that had happened and I had, I'd reassured her and said, you know what, in this session, you can go as deep, as wide, as broad as you want to go. You can share as much or as little as you want. Some of the thinking will happen in her head and she doesn't need to express it to me, but I know it's going on through the power of the questions. But her body relaxed as soon as she knew that she was in a safe environment. What she didn't say was being processed up here because what was profound at the end, having asked her incisive question, she completely breaks through. I imagine it's an emotional experience for a lot of people. Yes, you're nodding. <laughs> it's, it's a very emotional. And you know, Teresa, I am very comfortable with emotion. Mm -hmm. um, and you asked me earlier, uh, Reese, what some of my own learnings have been. When we train to become coaches, as you'll know, we go through a lot of self-awareness and self-learning and self-discovery. And I always remember one of my wonderful supervisors, I turned up for a coaching session once and I just burst into tears and she just held that for me so beautifully and said, you know, emotions and well, tears are a gift. What is that gift telling you right now, Jane? It's the most beautiful thing she could have offered. And it enabled me to reveal how awful I'd felt about something that happened that morning and express myself completely free of judgment. And I find there's a very powerful question that we will ask when being a thinking environment is what more do you think or feel or want to say? And what I notice in response to that question, every time people shift from their head to their heart and a lot of my clients, you know, are bankers, lawyers and consultants. They're incredibly intelligent people and they spend a lot of time in their head. And when I ask that question, because they've heard the word feel, they'll say, hmm, Actually, I'm feeling, feeling really refreshed right now, having just shared all that with you, or do you know, I'm feeling really frustrated in this moment. And I hold that space. Others will get very emotional tears. I ask the question and then the tears just come because it seems it's the first time someone has really cared about how they feel because they've had the courage to ask the question. Sometimes it's a courageous question to ask somebody because we can't deal with the response that might come back. One of the things that we all do as coaches is, is dealing with people with limiting beliefs. And what, what really struck me about the book and how Nancy does it and how you've explained it to me as well and how I've used it myself is that through a series of questions, I guess it's a way of reframing at the end of the day. She changed it from a limiting assumption to a liberating assumption. Mm. And it's something so simple. And it was often a case of, you know, by purpose of questions, finding out what the, the truth was and whether it was actually a real truth or a, an untruth pretending to be the truth, I think, yes. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, the powerfulness of changing that from a limiting to a liberating? Because I think that's something that a lot of people will be able to resonate with, particularly now, especially at this moment of confinement, the liberation is something that's going to touch everyone's heart. 
I think that's so true and it's a great observation and I found in this period these last few weeks um, that the being a thinking environment has been immensely valuable for my clients my family my friends I've been it for everyone um, but in answer to your question about assumptions one of the things the, the whole thinking environment is based upon one observation and one question the observation being the quality of everything we do in life depends upon the quality of the thinking that we do first and the question that underpins that then well is how do we help other people think well for themselves with rigor with that that question about assumptions is related to that how we help people think well for themselves is to discover what might be limiting them because what we also know is is that what stops us accomplishing what we want in life is an assumption more often than not that is untrue and yet we live it as if it's true mm -hmm. so our gift to another is to create this framework to invite them to say, well, you know, what might you be assuming that's stopping you from living the life you want to live right now? Well, you know, I'm assuming it's not possible because I don't have enough uh, revenue. Um, I'm assuming that I can't change my job because, you know, I'm trapped in this, this way of living. I'm assuming that my partner um, won't support me, for example. And some of these assumptions may be true, and some of them will know for sure are untrue. And so what we do is to we help people surface those assumptions and then we challenge the ones and, disc and help them find the one that is most preventing them accomplish what they want for themselves. And then, then that's the challenge and say, well, you know, do you think it's true that you can't change your job right now? And actually there might, then we challenge that and then give them the time to think some more. And what we're looking for is an assumption that's untrue. So we'll hold that space and invite them to think some more. And what will, and it's in that moment that we then challenge it. And if it's not true, therefore, that you can't change your job, for example, right now, what is true and liberating instead? Well, what's true is that I may not change my job right now, but I can start preparing for thinking about what I want to do next, my next steps in order to start planning for a change in job. That becomes more liberating. And so then we would ask them more what we would call an incisive question that breaks through to say, well, if you knew that you could change your job in the future, what would you do now? Well, actually, I'd start, start to research. I'd reach out to my network. I start to listen to some podcasts about things I'm really interested in and I make a plan for what I could do now. And so being a thinking environment for others, it also is very um, progressive and forward movement because people make new plans, new breakthroughs, new actions, and they find new ways of moving forward in their life. There's a somewhat, I find, personal opinion here, it's a somewhat frustrating reality and then also sort of a beautiful reality in and of itself. So Jane, you mentioned, and I, I do believe a large majority of the world's population probably holds the same belief that people are inherently good. What is your take on why then so many people have such negative thinking patterns? 
if the inherence of themselves is goodness? Why do we not have ample good internal thoughts? Yeah. Well, you know, I am very blessed to have had the experience and currently do. I'm part of the um, chaplaincy team for our local prison. And I couldn't have served these prisoners as part of being on that team had I not been through an experience being a thinking environment. This is one of the toughest environments I've ever experienced. And I, was, I started two years ago. And that's the environment which is full of negative thinking. And these gentlemen, it's a category B prison, men only. And the first time I went in on a Sunday morning and we have our minister and there were four others on the team. And our role is to be with the gentlemen, to listen to them and to pray for them at the end of the service. And I was terrified, absolutely terrified. As they walked in, they were really, really tall gentlemen, different skins, you know, coming from all different environments. I didn't know how to be. I knew that we were not allowed to ask why they were there. But we had people who were under very serious uh, convictions um, and some who were kind of protected. So they had done some terrible things. But you know, my philosophy is to see the good in people. So whilst I don't condone what those men may or may not have done, what I was faced with was a lot of negative thinking. And what I learned and what I learn every time I go in and listen to these men is that what has stopped them has been more often than not, they have never been told that someone loves them. They have mm. never felt cared for. And even what they have been told earlier on in their life, and one example was with one gentleman, he told me that when he was at school, his teacher said, hey, look, you're not going to be anything. You, all you are is the guy in the class who mucks around. So if you don't start behaving, you're just going to end up being nothing. So at the age of 13, he listened to that. And then his teachers told his parents and his, when he got home, his parents told him off, sent him to his room and said, if you don't pull yourself together, you're just going to end up being nothing in this world. So he thought, okay, well, I'm nothing. So therefore I'll be nothing. This poor gentleman got into drugs and not only taking them and then selling them um, and then really bad things and was involved in a robbery, negative thinking all the way around. He had never felt cared for or loved. And then having um, been convicted and having, um, he managed to find faith whilst he was in prison that released him from all the bad things he'd done. Um, and it was a real privilege uh, to have listened to his story, but that's the thing that I find has stopped people is that it's through early days um, that they have never felt loved or cared for to be able to find that goodness within. Mm. Wow. That's such a, a wonderful example of you uh, living that purpose that we kind of started off the whole show with. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and it also reminded me of the other big thing that I know about you. Uh, let's, let's say <clears throat> you were, you were describing there that everybody matters. So that leads us on to your connection with, um, with Bob Chapman and the, the leadership group team I forget the actual wording of the team you know but perhaps you'd like to just explain to us is does that differ slightly to the thinking partnership or is it an amalgamation of the two because I, I know uh, a little bit about what he's doing and what he's doing I know you recently went on a tour with him maybe you could share us a little bit about the 
the work you're doing with that group, please. Yeah, thank you for that. And it's kind of um, another part of the jigsaw puzzle. It's quite incredible. I met Bob um, because my husband was studying at Harvard and he was studying the Barry Way Miller case study. And Bob um, had flown over to Harvard and was keen to meet the class and to get their thoughts and views on it and then share his Bob's own story. Um, and Ed, my husband, was listening in and thought, my goodness, what Bob is saying and how he's communicating is exactly what my wife does and says, the art of listening, the way it's so profound, the impact it has on people's lives. And at, during the break, when everybody was waiting to have um, to sign Bob's book, Everybody Matters, mm -hmm. um, Ed had taken a few of my book, my book, uh, Are You Listening or Just Waiting to Speak? Mm -hmm. um, he ran up and got it because he'd taken a few to give to his classmates and gave a copy to Bob. Bob generously read it on, on the flight home and when he got back to the States, had his secretary call me to say, look, I've met your husband, I just read your book and I'd love to talk. And so we had an exchange and he then invited me over to, to sit in um, one of their classes, which was fantastic and I was really inspired by the now called Chapman and Co Leadership Institute, what they're doing and a very similar philosophy around igniting connection and illuminating people's thoughts. And so what I found in my journey with the Chapman and Co Leadership Institute and with Bob has been, Bob gave me a language and that it's okay to talk about that I hadn't had done before. And I, I began and shared with you that I'd worked in professional financial services and in the days that I'd been in that environment was very harsh, uncaring, inhumane, I would say. It was all about revenue, it was all about you know, profit generation. And it was never really about people. Even though I worked in a people function, we were constantly focusing on the bottom line. When I met Bob, it was just amazing to experience this senior chief executive who had, who had grown a business um, and really saw a very similar philosophy around the goodness in others and how do we look out for them and help them grow. So it really went right back to my original purpose and kind of pivotal moment of what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so meeting Bob Chapman was a kind of like, actually maybe meant to be. Oh, that's awesome. Amazing story. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, two amazing stories back to back. <laughs> okay, can we, can we get our fingers ready? The two like peace sign fingers on each, each hand? Yeah, let's put them together. Let's hashtag it. Yay! <laughs> Not anymore. Now, generally when we ask this question, it's about getting from you a golden nugget that people can start doing for themselves. However, I'm wondering if we can get the golden nugget that people can start using to help other people. In your opinion, to create an environment that is a listening environment or a thinking environment what is one thing or two or three because it might not be one that you can give to people and say look if you start doing this when someone else is speaking this will help them to discover whatever it is within them they need to discover beautiful two things First of all, I would say, listen to them free from interruption. Resist the urge to interrupt, to finish somebody's sentence. And secondly, 
listen free of judgment that you need to come up with any great answer. Simply listen free from interruption and judgment and hold within an encouragement that says, I'm interested in what you're saying and where you might go next. I'm interested in what you're saying and where you might go next. Fantastic. Fantastic back pocket <laughs> question. <laughs> oh, Jane, thank you so much. So we need to tell everyone listening how to get in touch with you and what you have on the horizon because our listeners are going to want to reach out to you. Thank you. So you can get hold of me um, directly through my website. It's janeadsaidgrant.com, all lowercase, no hyphen, or on LinkedIn. You know, we're all very active on LinkedIn. So again, janeadsaidgrant on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, but the main places would be through my website or LinkedIn. And what's coming on the horizon, guys, I'm super excited. Um, it's taken me a while to really get my head around this and to be very thoughtful about my preparation. And I'm about to give my first online thinking environment, thinking partnership program. So normally we hold it as a retreat three days, but now we're going to be bringing it online. It starts on Monday. Wow. Amazing. Incredible. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So Reese usually does this kind of amazing summary of the golden nuggets that he has learned. And I'm going to attempt to do that justice before we get into the rapid fire Q&A. Because I don't, when I listen to podcasts, I don't usually rewind them. Usually when I'm listening, I stop, type an email to myself <laughs> of whatever struck me, and then press play and then continue running. Because normally I listen when I'm out running. And I think that the summary that Reese usually does is perhaps pretty awesome for our audience that maybe went, that was really good, but I don't remember any of the golden nuggets. So one of the things that you had said right out of the gates is there's this profound human gift we can give to each other in creating environments where other people can become who they're meant to be. And that is simply in our ability to sit with people. If we want to bring it down to the granular, it's just sit with people and give them the space to speak. One of the things that I found myself wandering in my thoughts about was everyone who has ever done that for me has been someone that I hold very dear to my heart. They have this special pole position. You know, they're like number ones. Mm -hmm. And I think that that might be even be a beacon of light if people listening are thinking, who can I do this with? They probably already know in their heart who's available to be able to give them that space. Um, and so seeking those people out might be even something that they can really start doing today. Rapid fire Q&A. Are you ready, Jane? Okay, I'm ready. Ten statements, two choices. Interpret as suits you best. Come on, come on, question five. All right. Number one is manager or leader? Leader. Active or reactive? Active. Black and white or gray? Black and white. Optimist or realist? Optimist. Canada or England? Oh, I love them both. I love them both. Can England? <laughs> oh, that's, that's a first right there. Amazing. <laughs> oh, okay, we're on the back half. Heart or head? Heart. Empathy or assertiveness? Empathy. Introvert or extrovert? Extrovert. 
logical or emotional? Emotional. And number 10, innovation or process? Innovation. 10 up, 10 down. Thank you so much, Jane, for spending your time with us today, giving us your energy, giving us your wisdom. It was such a beautiful conversation. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me. And it's been so fun to share more with you. And I look forward to, to seeing you again soon on our Humans First calls. Yes. Indeed. Yeah, thank you so much, Jane. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You're always so um, generous with your, your wisdom and your time and your, your answers. And you always treat everyone with such great um, respect. And I really thank you for sharing some of that with our listeners. We love to hear all of your feedback here on TNT ESQ. So if you've enjoyed this show, you've learned something, you've been inspired, please share it with your friends. Please rate the show. Please write a review on whichever podcast uh, platform you enjoyed it on to help us spread the word, help more people think differently and more people start doing differently. Thank you.